Today we're uh, continuing our series on the Psalms. This is part 12. We've done 12 so far, and this is from Psalm 139 in the Bible's Old Testament. Uh, if you have a paper Bible and you kind of drop it open more or less to the middle, you might well land on some, Psalm 139. You might well, or it's somewhere around there. Uh, if you have an electronic Bible, even easier. Just go to Psalm 139, really short, uh, but extremely important psalm. Uh, one that reaches into our day, even even our our year, I believe, in the year 2021. And I want to frame it in the form of a question today. A little bit of ringing in my ears, Omar, uh, in the house. I think there's a touch of feedback coming from the, the house. I'm not sure. Uh, when do you know that you actually believe? Because we make the Christian faith... Um, a, you know, there's a, there's a moment we teach when uh, the sort of light switch of faith switches on and the person has moved from a state of unbelief or perhaps openness to Christianity into a state of faith. And we tend to teach that. Jesus taught that. Jesus said you must be born again. The implication is there's some type of experience where you know that there's this change that happens in your life. Uh, uh, John's gospel, whoever believes, receives Jesus and becomes a child of God. Well, the question, uh, especially for people today, is, well, how do I know that I've actually believed like, where does it, what happens? How do I re even know that? How can I be sure? You know, I wish there was a little light that we could shine. And if, you know, you come and you stand in front of the light, and if it turns, you know, red, it means you're a believer. And if it turns blue, it means you're an unbeliever. And that's how we know the difference, right? But there isn't such a light. And so the question becomes, well, when do I know that I'm actually a quote-unquote believer or a follower of Jesus, a disciple? When do I actually know that? Can I actually know that? And I think when you look at this Psalm uh, 139, which is uh, penned, uh, we think, by David, uh, again, at least half the Psalms were, and we have in some Bibles the, the actual, you know, attribution to David. We're not 100% sure, but it's likely true that it's David who wrote this. Um, we can look at this psalm, and in my view, I think it answers this question for us. But you may not exactly be comfortable or like the answer. So what happens when you start believing is you start Starts with a C. Facebook, YouTube starts with a C. You start C H. You start changing. Yeah, you start if if you're not changing in some way or another, and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and there's no actual change in your life, one might. One might rightfully ask the question, uh, okay, uh, so what's different about you if you say you're a follower of Jesus and so on? What has actually changed? The scripture would testify from cover to cover that faith and belief produces naturally 
change. Something starts to change about the person, and you see what changes in this psalm uh, as you read through it. And the psalmist here, David, he talks about what he perceives in terms of God, and he, he puts these reflections out as a result. And it's quite staggering what he writes and what he thinks about as he's writing, because uh, if, we're, if we're to believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and when we say that, we mean not that the authors of the Bible, and there's some 40 or so human authors, we don't mean that they went into some kind of trance and started writing, you know, like uncontrollably. We say, oh, well, by magic, we got the Bible. We don't, we don't uh, think that that's true. The, the, the Bible says in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, or in some translations, it's inspired by God. This means that he's kind of overseeing these writers as they are writing their psalms and their various books, and God is kind of overseeing this. So you see their personality come through, you see their strengths and their weaknesses come through, but over all of it, you have God sovereignly putting the scripture together. He's breathing through these human authors. It's God-breathed, and it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's infallible. This is what the Scripture teaches about itself. Now, if this is true, then what we read in Psalm 139, as David reflects on the character and the nature of God, he starts to talk about the changes in the ways that he sees life. And he picks up some things about God here, uh, again, because the scripture is inspired. He understands certain attributes about God, and he puts them down here. So it's not just sort of off the top of his head that he's guessing. He's writing this under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as I taught a couple of weeks ago, you can know certain things about God just intuitively. You, you can look around and you can observe life and you can observe creation and so on. And you can intuitively grab certain things about God. But you need revelation from God in order to understand who God is. That means he reveals himself to us and he's doing that through this very psalm. And you start reading here and you see right away uh, what what David is talking about. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Oh, that is a little frightening. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways before a word is on my tongue you know it completely O lord you hem me in behind and before you have laid your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me we'll stop there this is an attribute of god that theologians call omniscience. It means that God knows everything. 
And this is a trait that we see about God, and he's reflecting it in this psalm. It's not the only place that we see it in the scripture, but it's clearly a trait uh, about God's nature that we see revealed in the Bible. But look at how it changes the way that he thinks and the things that he says. Because he believes that God knows everything about him. God knows when he gets up in the morning, knows what he says, knows what he's thinking, knows what he's going to say even before he says it, that God can perceive his thoughts from afar. In other words, even before he's actually kind of focusing in on what he's thinking about, God already knows what he's going to think about. And he believes this and thinks that God knows what he says and God knows what he thinks. Now, the question for us is, do we? Do we really believe that God knows what we're going to say before we say it and that God knows what we're going to think before we think it? And God knows what you're thinking even right now as you think it. Your thoughts are known by him. Your words are known by him. For David, this is a good thing. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Why? Because he feels protected because God knows everything about him. He says, you hem me in, behind, and before. In other words, God, you've got my front. God, you've got my back. You know every last thing about me, everything. So for David, his words, his thoughts are affected. Now, he's in a position to know. Uh, this is probably written in the back end of David's life. And David is in a position to know that God knows his thoughts and God knows his words and his deeds. Because after all, David, in that dark moment of his life and that sinful moment of his life where his leadership came crashing down uh, through the whole thing with Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband and everything else. And we talked about that at length. Well, then. Uh, David would be in a position to know, uh, uh, you're not going to get away with what you think you're going to get away with because God knows your thoughts and God knows your deeds. He knows all of these things, your words, your actions. This is supposed to be uh, a positive thing for us and not a negative thing for us. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Are your words and your thoughts affected by your faith? If they are not, you have reason to question the authenticity of your faith. Um, he goes further because not only does he believe that God knows everything, he believes that God is therefore everywhere. And we call this trait omnipresence, to be present everywhere. And this is how he words it. Where can I go from your spirit? Implication, I can't. Nowhere. Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I hide from you? Implication, nowhere. You'll recall how the prophet Nathan challenged David and told him this little parable, uh, which was really about himself. And David would have learned from this, God is everywhere. He was there when I did what I did uh, with 
with this man's wife. He was there when I conspired to murder this, this man, Uriah. He was there. He is everywhere. I cannot hide from him. I cannot flee from him. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. That word for depths is the word sheol. Uh, back in the Old Testament, this was viewed as the place of the dead. Even if I go there, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, like uh, way out there, if I'm, if I'm like Jonah, you know, and I get on that boat and go the total opposite direction of where you want me to go, God. If you know the story of Jonah, the man who's called uh, to preach to the Ninevites and he goes and hightails it the other way and he thinks he can get away from God, God won't even find me there. He ends up being wrong. David echoing the same thing. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there. Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness aha, will hide me, the light become night around me. So I'll live in the, in the dark kind of thing. I'll, I'll operate in the dark. Even in the darkness will not be dark to you. Uh, the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. So not only does God know everything I'm going to say before I say it, not, as, not only does he know everything I'm going to think before I think it, and some of you right now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, you're thinking, well, does that mean I don't have free choice? Uh, no, you have free choice. It's just that God knows what you're going to think before you think it, before you exercise your right to choose what you're going to think. He already knows what you're going to think. Before you exercise your right to say whatever you're going to say, he already knows what you are going to say. But he says, beyond this, God is everywhere. I cannot run from him. I cannot hide from him. I cannot flee from him. And therefore, my actions and my decisions are now affected by my beliefs. Oh, no. You mean if I go over to this place over here or engage in such and such behavior or such and such activity, God not only knows what I'm thinking, he knows what I'm going to say, but he's there. He's there while I'm wherever. Yes, he's there. He's there in the brightest of places. He's there in the darkest of places, but he is there. Now, in, in Pentecostal uh, churches and tradition, we sometimes sing and talk about the presence of God, and we say we want the presence of God in our midst, so we, we sing songs like this. But the truth be told, God is everywhere all the time. He's in this movie theater all the time. He's not bound by location or anything like that. He's, he's here all the time. It's nice that there are people in here who are talking about God right now, but you know, in a couple of hours, uh, there'll be a Marvel movie on here or whatever's playing in here. But it's not like God, oh, well, he vacates the building because, you know, he doesn't like Marvel movies. I mean, God is everywhere all the time. He sees everything all the time. He knows everything all the time for everybody. It's our choice as to whether or not we let that affect our behavior. For David, oh, this would have affected his behavior 
And by implication, he wants his reader's behavior to be altered by this truth. So you have the omniscience of God. You have the omnipresence of God. These are basic, basic traits about God. The question for you, if you're a believer, does that make any difference in your life? Does that change your decisions? Does that change your choices? Does that change your actions, your words, your thoughts at all? If it does not, you may have reason to question whether your belief is authentic or maybe you're believing in something that doesn't change you at all. But there's, a, there's definitely a problem because for David, this is supposed to alter the person's life and he goes further. Uh, verses 13 to 18, this is probably my favorite part of this psalm. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I, do, does any of you knit here? You do any knitting? Raise your hand. Yes, we have two knitters. Okay, good. You're going you're gonna to really, really like this as we unpack this passage. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. This is, this is a staggering thought, if you actually believe it. So, you know, at the beginning of the psalm, he says that God perceives his thoughts and where he's going to go and what he's going to say. But here he goes further and he says, you saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Okay, we need to slow this down a little bit because there are some remarkable things that are being said here. David, with no modern medical knowledge, I mean, this is 3,000 3,000 ish years ago, okay? This guy doesn't even know what a microscope is. Um, I'm pretty sure David knows where babies come from, though. David wouldn't have believed that babies come from the stork uh, of all people. You read David's life, and he would know the general mechanics of where babies come from. But where he is getting this information and how he is writing this in this kind of imagery and metaphor is really, really quite staggering. You created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb. So I'm going to put some, some uh, pictures on the screen for you here. They look nice and big on, uh, on the big screen and they don't look so good on my screen and I can't read in the dark. So I'm going to turn around. Uh, I'm just showing you here a little biology lesson, okay? And this is the first 23 days that happened in your life after you were conceived in your mother's womb. This happened to all of you and those of you who are watching too. In the first 23 days, the same thing happened to you. 
there were there was very little differentiation whatsoever. The same thing happened to you. So you have all the little days that happen. So day one, you've got fertilization, right? Not from the stork. Your mom and dad got little kids in here. They'll tell you what that means, okay? So you have fertilization. And then you have day two where the thing starts to multiply. They call that cleavage. Day number three, you have compaction. Day number four, you have differentiation. Day number five, you have cavitation. Day number six, you have zona hatching. Day number seven, you have implantation. Day number, uh, should say eight. Oh, no, they're switching. They're skipping some days. Day number nine, you have cell mass differentiation. Day number 12, you have bilaminar disc formation. And then what you have in these bottom three things up to day number 23 is the foundation of what's going to be the skeletal system, the muscle system, the neurological system, the whole kit and caboodle is all starting to get hardwired in the first 23 days. And that's what happened to you. And that's what happened to me. That's what happens in a normal pregnancy it's a bit like knitting because the person who knits they have a plan that they're following and they know exactly where, where they want to go they know exactly what they want the quilt uh, to look like for example and they have they have the, the tools the plan the technique and they start knitting, and it doesn't look like much at all at the beginning. You look, at, you look at these people who are knitting, and you say, boy, you got time on your hands because you need a lot of patience to just be doing nothing because it looks like you're doing nothing. Uh, but then you watch, and you see they're not doing nothing. They're quite actively busy with their plan to produce this beautiful quilt. And it's amazing that the, the psalmist here likens this process to knitting. One wonders how he came up with this image. Again, if you, if you believe that the scripture is the inspired word of God, I suppose a case can be made um, that, that God inspired him to put this image uh, into the text. It's, it's really quite something, and it's a, quite a beautiful uh, image. Uh, I've told you I've been to the Amish country in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in the U.S. Boy, am I looking forward to just driving over the border, aren't you? Just, my gosh, just to take a trip to Plattsburgh, you know, and buy some something at Walmart, you know, just to do that would be nice. And who knows, maybe next year we'll, we'll head over to Lancaster again. Maybe we'll take some of you with us for fun. But over there they have um, uh, quilts and all kinds of quilts and these people make some gorgeous quilts the amish and the mennonite communities and i'm telling you they are detailed and elaborate this is the image that david is using here this is what god does he's knitting you together in your mother's womb okay so if you really believe that that's going to alter your view of of life that's going to alter your view of uh, well, you know, when does life begin? That's going to change your view. You might come out on the side of life begins. In the, wow, look at what look what's happening here. There is a hardwired, very specific process that's going on there that is common for people when you have a normal pregnancy, and it's hardwired. So all these little pieces and parts know exactly what to do. We're not even sure how they know what to do. 
we're still trying to figure out the, the detail and the complexity of this is, it's quite staggering. It's quite impressive. And I know the popular view would be, well, you know, it came about by time and chance and, and uh, billions of years. Oh, so, well, well, I have a hard time with that one because the detail and the complexity, it's just mesmerizing to me. Uh, I'll go a little further here. I remember when I was in uh, grade eight biology. Any of you remember grade eight biology? Well, I remember grade eight biology, and and uh, I wasn't a Christian at the time. Grew up in a in a Jewish home, but very uh, very light. So we weren't forced to to really uh, you know do everything. We did the major the major holidays in most secular liberal Jewish homes. That's the way it is. You don't even know much about the Bible, and you you know you celebrate Passover and you celebrate Yom Kippur if you don't want to die the next day. Um, and you, you know, you celebrate Hanukkah and, you know, you may go to, to temple a couple of times in your life for a wedding or whatever. And, you know, that's kind of the liberal Jewish uh, scene that I grew up in. So I wasn't a believer at all. And uh, I remember being 13, 14 years old, sitting in high school biology class in grade eight. And I, honestly, I think looking back in time there, I really think that God spoke to me in that classroom. Because there was this substitute teacher who got up there and started drawing on the chalkboard the process by which DNA copies itself. And we also learned about the, the cell. And this is, uh, oh, you see it's so nice on the big screen. It's gorgeous. Uh, you, you've only got trillions of them in your body right now uh, working away and doing their job. But you see, all these little pieces and parts of the cell here all have a very specific function and a very specific purpose. It's like a factory. It's like a machine, an extremely efficient machine. In fact, when things start going wrong with this, your life is at stake. That's how efficient it is. And each part knows what it's doing. And it's, it's like a very, very highly organized factory. It's very difficult to use another word when you start understanding what, with what each one of these little things does. And I remember when this high school substitute teacher, biology teacher, drew on the chalkboard how DNA copies itself. And I'm looking at this, I'm saying, my goodness, this is some nice computer. This is some nice machine that's happening here. This is very, very impressive stuff. And I honestly, looking back, I could say, I think that God spoke to me about his existence just in observing this. This is the kind of thing that David is talking about here. He is awestruck by the power of God that he sees just in observing himself, the human body. He's awestruck by this, and he attributes the early, early thing, right from the beginning, right from the womb, he attributes to God, he does. And he says, even my unformed body, you saw it there. He's trying to say that God, you're, if, if you were to say to David that you are an accident, David would say, no, you are not. He would say, you are the product of 
God. You are, you are there because God wants you to be, and so much so that he saw your unseen body, so much so that he's, he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. Now, I know this is very controversial today. Because today, especially with what's going on in the United States and, and the state of Texas, and it's, it's ramping up uh, over in the United States, and that might well mean that it'll ramp up over here. I know it's very controversial, but I'm just saying, if you ask David, where does life begin? If you ask David, is it alive in the mother's womb? David would say unequivocally, yes. Because God oversaw that thing. You say, yeah, but what about this circumstance over here? And what about that circumstance over there? I don't know. He's not addressing every circumstance. But for him, he's saying, listen, you are not an accident. You're not the result of, of the billions of years of chance. There is a design to you and a purpose to you. And this is what he's trying to say. He's not getting into all the little nitty gritty details, but he's saying, don't think to yourself that God didn't have a hand in your formation as a person. God had a hand in that. He saw your unformed body even. Not only does he know your thoughts, not only does he know your words, he saw you before you were you. Wow. That'll change the way that you think about Life, for sure, that'll give you at the minimum a profound respect for human life and maybe even all life. It will give you a very deep respect if you think that God oversaw that whole thing. It applies even to today. I'm showing you on the screen. If you're, it, whatever your position is on, on the pandemic, and the vaccine, I, I really, I know that there are varying positions in this room. I know there are varying positions on the camera here. I know people will watch this and listen to this and forward this. Let me just acknowledge I'm aware of all of the positions of all these things. But the microscope does not care about your position. The microscope does not care what your belief is. The microscope does not care who the president of the United States is or who Anthony Fauci is or is not. The microscope could care less because what the microscope does is tell you what is there. It has no opinion about your political persuasion or your conspiracy theories or not conspiracy theories or whether you're for and against or whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. It does not care. It will just tell you what's there. And that microscope is not even a microscope. It's a much more detailed device that is looking just just bear with me. That is looking at a real virus. That's SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus that is around the world. And you can look at it under a microscope and you can see what it does to people. You can track its DNA. You can look at its genome sequence. You can do all of that because we can see it and we can look at it and see what it does. And here in this really gorgeous picture, they've dressed it up a little bit so you can see the machinery of this hijacker. This virus, and this is what viruses do, is they are hijackers. Now, I use that term hijacker uh, because that's, a, that's what they do, but that ignites people's emotions. Uh, September the 11th, right? People hijacked planes. 
And they used the existing technology to destroy human life. That's exactly what this little, little guy does. So it insidiously goes inside of your body and hijacks the machinery of your cells so that it can take over. It is a hijacker. I'm not telling you that because I'm pro-vaccine or against vaccine. I'm telling you that because that's what a microscope tells us. It could care less about your opinion. I have friends who have died of, of SARS-CoV-2, of or the coronavirus disease. I, I have a neighbor who died of it very, very quickly. So, you know, you say, well, yeah, but you, da, 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 da. whatever you think, it's irrelevant Whatever I think is irrelevant. What's relevant is what we can see and what we can observe. And that, my friends, is exactly what we see and we observe. It is a hijacker. And it hijacks very well, and it's very efficient at doing that. That's another shot of it. And you see the little spiky things on the outside of that, of that cell. That's what, we, that's what we're very, very interested in is the little spiky things. Now, you say, what's this got to do with the psalm? David says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So I look at the power of God and I get scared when I understand more and more about myself and what I see. I get scared because of the power of God and how he has created me. But I am wonderfully made as well. Why? Because of this. Those little whys in there are what's going to take out the hijackers. Those little wives are antibodies, and those antibodies are trained specifically to hunt and to kill the hijacker that goes awry in your body when you catch that virus. I am not exaggerating when I say these terms. These are observable in a microscope. You can look at it happen. And those antibodies are God's design to kill that virus. They are on a seek and destroy, a search and destroy mission, and they hunt those little spikes. And when they get a hold of them, they rip them apart and dismantle them, and they destroy the whole cell. And that's how you get better when you have a virus. Now, the cool thing, and here I'm going with my pro-vaccine rant, so if you're anti-vaccine, just hold your tongue and wait for it to be over. What the vaccine does, all the vaccine does, it doesn't change your DNA. You're not going to get two horns, you know, in five years and a little red tail and red eyes. You, it doesn't put metal in your body. It doesn't put a microchip in your body. It does not do this. You cannot observe that in a microscope. But what it will do is it'll make those little whys early. It'll make those wise, those antibodies, and they will be ready to seek and destroy the hijacker. So that when you get the virus, I will use the word when and not if, because vaccinated people and unvaccinated people alike can get the virus. It does not care if you are vaccinated. But when you are vaccinated, you've got those whys already. They're already encoded to hit that spike and to destroy it, you see. And so when you catch that virus and you already have the whys there, your body is not wasting time freaking out trying to create them. They're already there. 
And so because they're already there, they go after the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 and they destroy the hijacker a lot quicker than if you had to do that without the assistance of a vaccine. And what the vaccine, all it does is get those little Ys encoded to go after that spike. Why am I saying this? Because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's a wonderful device, the immune system. And theory says if you're relatively healthy, that immune system is going to kill that hijacker. All the vaccine does is get your body ready early so that you have a much greater chance of getting less sick and not hospitalized or even lose your life. Much, your odds are much better that those things will not happen to you because your body's already prepared. That's it. And that's my rant. If you're, if you're anti-vaccine, I'm glad you held your tongue. Okay. But the, I mention this because it is an example of the wonderful body that God has created. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's pretty amazing. And that, and that works for viruses in general, right? So though we've got a system that God designed, at least according to David, that does this amazing, wonderful work. And he's saying, I'm fearfully made and I'm wonderfully made. This is why we, we like to watch things like um, arts that use, use the body like dance. This is why we like to watch things like figure skating. This is why we like to watch sports in general. This is why people love to watch the Olympics. This is why guys like me watch uh, baseball because we see the body do things and there is a wonder to it and there is a grace to it that we look at and we say, wow, that is really, really impressive to see. It's wonderful to see. We've got a, uh, our guitar player here who's a seven-time uh, Canadian bodybuilding champion. And when he's, when he's competing, I don't know if he'll compete anymore, but when he was competing, I mean, you look and you say, my goodness, I don't want to run into this guy in a dark alley. We've got uh, another guy in here who's a very good uh, squash player. We've got people, I'm sure, into all kinds of different sports here. Why do we like these things? Because we like to see the body at, at perform in an elite capacity. Because there is a wonder to it and a beauty to it and a grace to it. And this is what the kind of thing that David is talking about. I'm fearfully made and I'm wonderfully made. It should cause us to be in awe of God the more that we look at stuff like this, the more that we look into the cell, the more that we understand creation and the amazing complexity of just the human body to say nothing about the cosmos around us. There's a cosmos inside of us that we are still discovering. And that should cause us to have kind of a fear of God, a reverence for the power of God, but also to appreciate how wonderfully the body is made. Wow. We should take care of it, maybe. Maybe we should, you know, change the way that we eat or we should exercise a little bit or we should actually enjoy the fact that God has created us. When you really believe these things, it's going to alter the way that you think. It's going to alter the way that you think about even human life itself. And finally, at the end of the psalm, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky, he starts talking about the justice of God. 
And uh, really, it's, it's derived from his understanding of the holiness of God. But the way that he describes it is a little bit, it puts us off a little bit, especially in the modern world here in the West. And watch how he does it. If only, verse 19, you would slay the wicked. Oh, God. Ooh, that's harsh. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. That's even harsher. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? Very strong language. It's as if he wants God to know of his strong hatred and detest for those who detest him. And then he has the nerve to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Well, your heart seems to be very angry, David. It seems to be very hateful of people who are God's enemies, isn't it? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Well, we would read that and say, that's pretty offensive. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm ends. Well, what's he doing there? In his own language and in his own time and in his own context, what he's really doing is he's reflecting on the holiness of God and ultimately the justice of God. We have a lot of trouble with that today because, again, we love the idea that God is loving and God is graceful and gracious and God is patient and Again, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we tend to like that. And we, we tend to like verses that say God is love and all of those things. But you cannot have that without God being holy. You cannot have that without God being just. And here what he's asking for essentially is justice to be served against the enemies of God. Offensive to us, yes, but he is doing this because he understands God's holiness and he's trying to reflect on that. So don't be put off by the, the angry uh, language. It's what you call an imprecatory uh, language there where God, where the author wishes bad things to happen to his enemies. You've got to search underneath that. What he's doing is he's reflecting on the holiness of God and therefore the justice of God. And he's crying out for that justice. And that's not a bad cry. And we've looked at that uh, in previous Psalms already. So what's the bottom line for us uh, today? And I'll zap back to the original question. When do we know that we actually believe? Well, are your thoughts and your words affected by your faith? Are your decisions and your actions affected by your faith? Is your view just of human life itself affected by your faith? Do you see justice in a different way because of your faith and the necessity for God to do something about moral evil because of your faith? Your whole view of the world starts to change. And I know we're dealing, we've dealt with a little controversial subject here in the origin of life. I'm not making a comment on how Christians have behaved with regard to this. 
that's a, another sermon for another day. Okay, David is not commenting on this. And to be sure, there's people who have behaved in abhorrent ways uh, who call themselves Christians with regard to this whole thing of, you know, abortion and so on. I'm not commenting on that. But David, what he's saying, I guess I did just comment on it anyway. But what David, what David is saying, you got that, didn't you? What David is saying is, are you, is your life altered by what you believe? If it's not altered, if it's not changed, then you do have reason to question either you're believing in something that has no power to change your life, or maybe the quality of your faith is just flimsy. It's just not enough to make a change in you. But that's what God is after, change in your life. So with that, we're just going to uh, close in prayer here as we finish up. Uh, Sean, you're alone today, but if you want to come up and play something uh, on, your, on your guitar as we pray, we'll just finish up that way. Remember to pick up your kids uh, before you leave today. But let me pray for you because we cover some heavy, heavy stuff here. But I'm just convinced that for a lot of us who are part of churches and who are trying to live Christianly, wow, there, there, there needs to be uh, some sort of indication, right? We need to be sure, and you're sure because you see things change. Father, I pray for each one who's in this room today, those who are watching online, those who are going to watch, those are who are going to, uh, those who will listen. And Lord, I think of people who are working in, in healthcare today. I think of people who are uh, caring for people who are in need and they're at risk. Uh, we still live in this pandemic moment. I think of the, uh, the person in school, the young person in school, forming their whole worldview and their belief system and their convictions. I think of the person who's kind of surveying Christianity from afar and observing and trying to make uh, heads or tails of it. I think of the person who's been a Christ follower for their whole life since they were a child. Uh, Lord, I think of those who are going through painful moments in their life and their faith is being tested and they wonder, where is God? Lord, may we be changed by what we believe. May your spirit alter us. May the fruit of the spirit grow in us that we would be living the life of Jesus in this world that people would see us and see there's something different. Uh, their reaction was different than expected. Their words were different than expected. Their kindness was not necessary, and yet they were kind. Uh, their lack of vengeance is impressive. Their, their uh, love for the unlovely is impressive. Their unity with one another is impressive. God, may they look at us and see something different and something transformative that uh, the change that you produce in us would light you up to a lost and broken world. Lord, I pray uh, for those who they're feeling the, the heat actually from the things that they believe. Maybe they're being made fun of. Maybe they're being you know pushed around or persecuted a little bit because of what they believe. Uh, Lord, help us always to hold to the things that we believe, but to do so with gentleness and with respect and with integrity. 
I pray, God, that ultimately you would use each one according to the measure of our faith. You would use each one by a changed life to shine for you. We pray to that end. Amen. Amen. God bless you, everyone, and uh, have a great rest of weekend. Remember again to pick up your kids. There's still some Krispy Kreme donuts for your fearfully and wonderfully made body <laughs> to enjoy. I'll be hanging around in the front. Would love to visit with you before you go. God bless you, everyone.